In just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, actually 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, and verses 20 and 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, whether that's uh, in your Bible or in the Bible app, uh, the notes should be in the Bible app, they're on our website as well. Um, and uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to look at two verses uh, from there this morning, and I'm going to use those verses kind of as the, um, the launch for the message. It's been said that if you uh, show me your checkbook, I'll show you what is most important in your life. Of course, the, the thrust of that is that if we uh, see where you spend your money, then that is what we value. And honestly, I suppose there's some, some truth in that. Most of us probably... Um, the majority of our income probably goes to to our home or our whether it's a mortgage whether it's rent or or whatnot um, and so because we, we value our home and that's where we that's where uh, many Americans spend their money and so so I suppose there's some truth in that let me uh, give you an example though some of us have uh, uh, we got an economic stimulus check so money came in to us and so when you were going uh, to get that money and you knew that check was coming did you already spend it before you got it don't act all spiritual some of you some of you spent it before you got it i spent mine even though i still haven't spent it i spent mine before i got it like oh i can buy this and i can buy that and i can buy this and i can buy that and and uh, because that, that's what we do. We know there's money coming. Or if you're going to get a big tax return back, you go, oh, well, I can, I can now buy this. I've, I've been wanting to buy this. And uh, that's just what we do. And we spend that money in our head before we actually get the money. If you uh, know my story, you, you know sometimes I have trouble spending money. Um, we, we grew up, I grew up pretty poor, and, uh, you, you know, way back when you actually stood in line to get the block of cheese and the big canister of peanut butter, you probably remember those, the, the commodities, and you'd go stand in line, and, and we'd get all excited when we got the, you know, big thing of peanut butter. That's way back when uh, food stamps were actually paper food stamps, right? So everybody knew you were on food stamps when you went to the store and you got out the paper food stamps to buy it buy your stuff um, and and my mother worked three jobs to try to support us and provide for us and I remember we used to go to the dump and this is way back before the dump was this big conglomerate and we'd go uh, go through the dump where people would dump all their trash and we'd try to find stuff that we we thought were cool and and like oh man look at this I found this I remember one time I found a Mickey Mouse watch and I was pretty excited and I remember Christmases were the only gifts that we received were things that other people didn't want, and but at least we got something. And so sometimes, to be honest, I have trouble spending money. I'll, I'll just be like, oh, I don't really need that, or I don't need that, or I don't need that. And and um, I wouldn't have any problem spending your money, but when it's my money, I have trouble spending it. Uh, what do you think is one of the most common complaints that non-churchgoers have against the church? I'll give you a hint. It's the title of our message. 
The church just wants my money. They just want my money. And often those complaints are justified, right? Because, because there's all, kind of, all kinds of churches where every single Sunday the pastor stands up and he pressures the, pressures the people to give more so that the church can, can get more and so that they can receive a blessing. So if you give more, then God's going to bless you. And the pastor tries to guilt trip people into giving more. I've been in a church where, where they launch a pledge campaign. Where they ask you to pledge how much you're going to give for the coming year so that they can set their budget based upon how much that you say that you're going to give in the coming year. There's churches where if you're not tithing, then you can't be a member of the church. And then you add to that all these, these TV preachers, right? Flying around in their jets and this, that, and the other. And they live these lavish lifestyles. And they have expensive clothes. So much so that someone actually created an Instagram account called Preachers in Sneakers. And the whole account is devoted to how much money some preachers spend on not just sneakers, it's often sneakers, but just in general on, on their clothing. As you can tell by my outfit, I spend a lot of money on, on my clothes. I, I really don't. But, uh, um, and the, the whole account's dedicated to that. Some people spending over $1,000, pastors, on a pair of tennis shoes. And so many of these TV preachers will say that God will repay you abundant, abundantly if you just give to their ministry, you will get so much more in return. And so there's all kinds of abuses going on in the church. But here's the truth. Right? The church doesn't need your money. That's the truth. The church doesn't need your money. See, sometimes we get it stuck in our head that Oh, the church needs my money. Or, or if, if I withhold my money, that church is going to go under. They'll sink. Church doesn't need your money. Because it's not your money. It's God's. So that's why in this series on the church, we need to stop and consider what does the Bible say about the church? About money. And how do they go together? What I've found as a significant theme in Scripture is that we are to be stewards of what God has given to us as followers of Christ. That's not different in the church and how the church is to handle money. We're to be stewards of what God has given us. We have to be stewards and handle money with integrity. So here's this sermon in, in a sentence. The church must be good stewards displaying financial integrity and in how money is secured how money is spent, and how money is saved. You see what I did there? Made them all S's, so they're easier to remember. And how money is secured, how money is spent, and how money is saved. It's important to define some terms here. So when I say integrity, I mean honesty before God and how funds are handled. When I say stewardship, I'm meaning all of our resources, not just the church's resources, but our personal resources as well. I will advocate that they, that they do not belong to us, but they actually belong to the Lord and that we will give an account for how we use His resources that He's entrusted to us as a church and personally. You will give an account 
for what you've done with the resources that God has given you. And so I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses just two verses, 20 and 21 this morning. Where we read, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Let's pray. Father, take your word this morning and penetrate our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I don't, I don't know what people need to hear today concerning money. But whatever it is they need to hear, I pray that you would speak it to them. Not, not me speaking it to them, but you would speak to them this morning. Speak for your saints and listen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the Apostle Paul is collecting a large gift from the Church of Macedonia and Greece to help the poor believers that were in Jerusalem. And as we can see uh, from these verses, we read that Paul is obviously concerned with integrity and the stewardship of this offering of this money and this whole topic of money is not a minor topic in the bible the book of proverbs actually has a lot to say about money jesus actually spoke about money and possessions in 16 of his 38 recorded parables in the gospels alone one out of every 10 verses deals directly with money for comparison, the Bible has 500 verses that are on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. So obviously I can't deal with 2,000 verses this morning. We'd be here forever. You know, we'd go into the next day and then, you know, a week later we'd still be sitting there listening to me preach. And I don't think I'd preach that long. But we're just going to cover some aspects this morning. And as I stated in the, in the sermon in the sentence, there are three areas we're going to deal with when it comes to money. All three start with S. How money is secured. How money is spent. How money is saved. We'll look at them biblically. So first, let's notice the church should secure money biblically. The church should secure money biblically. Now, what do I mean by this? The church should secure money biblically. And all of these three points, you will notice that they will end with biblically. And that is because we want to, uh, we want to make sure that we're using our Bible to justify what is being said. The Bible is to be our clear guide in everything and in everything we're doing. And so on all these points, we're going to be using the scripture to back up what's being said. And the first one, I want us to look at four positives and a negative when it comes to the church securing money biblically. Four positives and a negative. First positive, by teaching biblical principles on money. So we should secure money biblically by teaching biblical principles on money. The first way the church should secure that money is by actually teaching these biblical principles when it comes to how we handle money. 
Unfortunately, we live in a time where Christians get their advice on handling money from the world and not from what the Bible actually teaches us. And so we spend more money than we earn, and we go further and further into debt in order to support a lifestyle that gets sold to us through advertising, the media, and how we see our neighbors living, right? And so, so there are many evangelicals that are very generous in their giving to the Lord's work, but all the statistics that you look at and read and, and research tell us that only about two Two to three percent of their income actually goes to Christian causes. Two to three percent. The average giving per person in churches each year is roughly $884 for the year. Now, there are some people who give 10% of their income, and they, they do this because um, oftentimes they have this mistaken notion that if they do that, then they've met the biblical requirement for tithing. So i got to give 10% because that's what I'm told to tithe and I met the requirement. I'm going to dismantle that notion here in just a little bit, which is probably why people get mad when I actually preach online, because I dismantle the whole notion that you give 10% as a tithe. I don't find that in the Bible, but we'll do that in a minute. A major part of the problem is that if you're in debt, you can't actually afford to give generously, right? If your outflow, money I'm giving away, is greater than my inflow, money I'm taking in, how can I give? I can't. And so what happens, especially in America, is that we're in bondage to greed and debt. Our greed tells us that we need more in order to be happy. We need, and, and not that we just need more in order to be happy. We need that right now. So what do we do? We borrow money to get what we think we need right now in order for us to be happy. And you know what happens? We're enslaved to the lender. Listen, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you never to take out a loan. I'm not going to tell you that having nice things is bad. But I will say that you have to understand that when you take out a loan, then you're enslaved to the lender of the loan. Because you now owe them until the loan is paid off or in some cases they come and take it back. And we have to understand that when we take out a loan. Our problem is we overextend ourselves. And, and what happens is our greed controls our life. And that, my friends, is sinful. I can't tell you how many times debt creates problems in marriages. I've seen financial issues destroy marriages and lead to divorces. And debt, especially too much of it, prevents us from giving generously to the Lord because we've taken on a bunch of debt that we have to pay back and we can't give to the Lord because we got it. We're enslaved to the lender. You know what the best way to avoid going in debt is? Don't borrow money. <laughs> that's, that's the best way. Some people will say, well, I feel like I'm in a pit of debt and, and I'm never going to get out. You know what you have to do? If you're in a pit, you got to stop digging. 
You don't, you don't go deeper into debt. He goes, well, I'm never going to get out of this debt, so I better go deeper into debt. That makes absolutely no sense. I know that's what our government does. That's, that's why it doesn't make any sense. We spend money we don't have to support a lifestyle that we can't afford. When I do marriage counseling, I make every couple come in with a budget. That's one of our sessions. Next session, you're going to come in and you're going to show me your budget. And I do it for a reason, because we have to teach biblical principles of handling money. That's so how the church is to secure money, is that we say, hey, here's biblical principles in handling money. Because if you don't ever have any money, then you can never give to the work. Secondly, the church secures money biblically through the generosity of its members. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought you said you're going to dismantle the idea of tithing. I am. That doesn't mean we don't give. You see, one of the problems of tithing is um, it encourages people to give the bare minimum rather than to, rather than to give generously. It also goes back uh, to that mindset that I spoke of earlier. It causes some Christians to think that if they give their 10%, the rest of it is theirs, right? I gave 10%, so the rest of this money is mine. And I get to spend it however I want to spend it. I gave to the Lord, and now I have this money. That's my money. But it's not their money. This denies us being stewards of, of what God's given to us. It, the biblical principle of stewardship means that it's all God's, and we just manage it for Him. That's the idea of stewardship. So the money you have, that's God's. And he said, I want you to manage this money for my purposes. And so when reading the New Testament epistles, we find nothing by the way of instruction for tithing. Though much is said about giving. Paul gave some instruction for the collection uh, for the poor in Judea. This is what he said. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16 too. So what is the amount that Paul told people to give? As he may prosper. Paul also gives some instruction uh, to Timothy. This is what he said to him. As for the rich... In this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a God or as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, praise the Lord. I'm not rich, so this verse doesn't apply to me. <laughs> if you live in America, you're very rich by the rest of the world's standards. Paul tells us that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I say this because I don't believe that we have to feel uh, guilty about enjoying the things that God provides for us. You don't have to feel guilty. And I know for me, sometimes I struggle with that. If I go out and buy something, I immediately feel guilty. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I do. And that's on me. I shouldn't feel that way, but I do. 
I don't think we. I don't think the Lord's like, well, you know, I've I've given you this so you can so you can do ministry more effectively or something like that. And then we we shouldn't feel guilty about that. But there's a principle to follow for us here, and that's that we need to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. J. Vernon McGee used to say this. If you eat in a restaurant, you should pay for your meal. And if you get fed by a ministry, you should give to that ministry. If you're committed to a local church, and that is where you're being spiritually fed, then you need to help support the ministries of that church through grace giving. Thirdly, a church secures money biblically by informing members of financial needs. By informing members of financial needs. We don't have one single example in the New Testament where a Christian worker makes his financial needs known to prospective donors. And this is important. We see where Paul informed the church of others' workers' needs, but he never appealed for his own funds. And this doesn't mean it's a command that everyone is to follow, like you can never make an appeal for funds. Not one time in eight years as the pastor have I ever gone in and demanded a pay raise. As far as I know, I don't even think I've ever asked for one. My salary's not a secret. I trust that if people want to know why I make what I make or, or they think it's whether they think it's too much or too little, they can ask me and say, well, why do you make this much money? We trust that God's going to meet our needs. And so far, guess what? He has. But when it comes to the local church and the members who are the family of God, things are a little bit different. So if, you're, if your family is having trouble paying the bills, what do you do? Well, hopefully you go on a budget and you make sure the bills get paid and you say, okay, we gotta, we got to take care of this. It's the same for the church. The church should have open communication about where they are financially. It shouldn't be this big secret like, oh, well, that was a surprise. We had no idea. Now, since we have not been having our meetings, our normal meetings, we don't get a monthly financial statement that we usually have. And part of that's on me because I haven't really asked for one and I've not made them available. What I will say is that in eight years of being the pastor at First Baptist Church, we've never made our budget, ever. Thankfully, we've had general fund savings and we've had uh, farm income to help us out. But as you know, sooner or later, when you're closing in the hole, right? You close in the hole every single year. You're going to have to figure something out. You can't do that year after year after year. And so far this year, we're in the hole. But we're ahead of past years. Just something to think about. The church should manage money like you do in your home. Fourthly, how do we secure money? Through prayer. Through prayer. It's okay to pray for finances. It's okay. Sometimes we forget that. 
Paul, when he was urging the Corinthians to give to the saints in Judea, he said, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God supplies our needs so that we can give even more through asking him in prayer. He tells us to ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Those verses are applicable to individuals and to the church. The church should pray for finances. We shouldn't just look and say, oh man, we're behind again. Oh no, woe is me. What's the church going to do? They're going to fold up. They're going to crumble. They might as well close the doors. We should be praying. God would supply. But we should secure money biblically. Lastly, the church secures money biblically not through traditional teaching on tithing. So negative. Not through traditional teaching on tithing. Now, as I've already said in the introduction, I've, I've been in a, uh, churches that did pledges, and um, there's many churches that do that. They say, well, you guys pledge, and how much money you're going to give in the coming year, and um, then we know how to set our budget. Other churches teach falsely from Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Maybe you've heard a sermon uh, on that. And, and they order that their members are to give 10% to the church. And they promise that if you just give 10%, then God will abundantly meet your needs. Because, because that's what God does from Ma in the book of Malachi 3.10. That's what we call storehouse giving. I want you to stop and think about this. If you're giving in order to get... What's that appeal to? If I'm giving so God blesses me, what am I appealing to? I'm appealing to greed. If the only reason I'm giving more is so I'll get more, that's an appeal to greed. Some churches will use these high-pressure fundraising campaigns that are of the world. Some churches have even had professional fundraisers come in so that they can raise money for a new building campaign or whatever it is. And these professional um, campaign people come in and they, they say, we're going to raise large amounts of money and we'll do it if you only let us take a cut of the money. And these methods are based on worldly techniques and they manipulate people. They're not based on biblical principles. Now some will say that if you're not supposed to give 10%, then what should we give? You've heard me say this before. If you want to give a percentage, then 10% is the floor. It's not the ceiling. The problem with a tithe of 10% is there's not a New Testament principle for it. And even if it's based on Old Testament principle, that would more, more likely be closer to 30%. So if you really want to give a percent, start giving 30%. Not 10. This is why we should give God what we feel God is telling us to give. And for some that, that have been extremely blessed by God, their giving should be a reflection of that. It should be, well, God has extremely blessed me. My giving should reflect how God has blessed me. There are some people that could probably give 50% of their income or even more. We should be giving based upon what God has already given to us. I thought of this modern parable as I was writing this sermon. Both Johnny and Jimmy do freelance work. 
They get paid $100 for their work. Johnny is struggling financially. He barely has enough money to eat. But he still understands that everything that he has is from the Lord. Including the $100 that he just received for the freelance work that he did. And so he decides that he's going to give back to the Lord $10 of what is already God's in the first place. Jimmy has plenty of money. He really does not even need $100. But out of duty, he thinks, well, you know what? I'm supposed to tithe, so I am going to give $10 of the $100. Who gave more? Johnny gave more because he understands grace. You see, this is the problem with the modern idea of tithing. We think that we just give a percentage. How much should Jimmy have given? I don't know. I can't answer that. But since it's all the Lord's and he does not need it anyway, you decide how much he should have given. What if it was you? What if you had all the money you can handle and you got $100 for doing something? How much would you give? We like, we'd like to say, oh, well, I'd give it all. Right? That's what we'd like to say. But only you can answer that. Would you really? Would you have really given it all? Okay, I have to get moving. Churches secure money biblically. Next, we notice the church should spend money biblically. So, we secure money biblically, and then we spend money biblically. Have you ever given any thought to how the church should spend its money? I mean, what kind of things should, should the church spend money on? Well, I believe that we are told explicitly in Scripture three things that a church should spend money on. Three things that the Bible tells us this is what the church should spend money on. And I believe there's one thing that's permissible to spend money on, but not necessarily mandatory. So three things that the church says, this is what you should spend money on, one thing that's permissible. Got to hurt. By supporting those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's number one. The church should spend money on supporting those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, of course, you're going to say, well, of course, pastor, you'd put that first because you're the pastor and you labor in preaching and teaching and you want to just beat us up and tell us to pay you more. No, I don't. It's very hard to stand up here and preach a sermon to say, hey, we're supposed to support the man that's given to preaching and teaching because it feels like you're self-promoting, like, oh, well, look at me. I'm a nobody, okay? I understand that. But our desire as a church should be those people that preach and teach the counsel of God's word, Scripture clearly teaches us that we are to support them. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, granted, scholars offer, uh, they have these differing uh, uh, meanings on what does it mean to be double honor, but the context in which Paul is writing and in his other writings on the subject strongly supports the view that the term is speaking both of respect, so double honor of respect, and both and of financial compensation. Both. In Galatians 6.6, 6, Paul writes this, let the one who is Taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. All good things includes financial support. Even though it seems that Paul denied himself the right of receiving financial support from the churches that he was currently ministering to, though he did receive a gift 
that was sent to him from the church at Philippi, he did argue that workers are worthy of support. 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. So first, we support those who labor in preaching and teaching. We're told this is what you do. Church, this is how you spend money. You support those who labor in preaching and teaching. Secondly, the church should spend money by supporting missions. By supporting missions. Paul's letter to the Philippians makes it clear that he received support from that church while he was ministering in Corinth. He's on his ministry, uh, missionary journey um, in Corinth, and the church at Philippi sends him gifts to support him. The Apostle John tells us this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of your name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now we know that the needs of missions and missionaries is enormous. And it, it's hard to determine how money should be allocated. That's why I'm thankful for things like the uh, Annie Armstrong offering and the Lonnie Moon offering and the cooperative program because it allows us as Great Commission Baptists to combine our funds with other churches and help our dollars stretch even further. And so it's not just one little church giving to the cooperative program to support missionaries all around the world. It's all of our churches pulling their resources together to support missionaries all around the world. This church is also supporting mission trips, both stateside and overseas. And so the church should spend money on missions. Thirdly, the church should spend money by helping the poor. And when I say helping the poor, I'm referring to helping the poor locally and globally. Globally, Did you know that 90% of the references related to giving in the New Testament deal with helping poor believers? The Apostle John is forthright and blunt when he says this in 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John here is tapping in the words of Jesus who said uh, to the same extent that we, are, uh, that we are to help even the least of our brothers. And when we do, we do it to him. Now what about helping the poor who are unbelievers? The church's main job is to preach the gospel, but ministry to the poor can open doors of evangelism to preach the gospel. So often when we meet needs, the door to share Jesus is wide open. We should act with compassion towards needy people. That we are commanded so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're supposed to do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. Now think about giving to those in need. Right? We often have the idea that we just give some money. Well, let's give some money and everything goes away. But sometimes we're guilty of not giving genuine help to those that need it. If we only offer cash, it can lead to irresponsible behavior. Or it can even create this unhealthy dependency in the person that we think that we're helping them out when we're not really helping them out. There were poor
poor people in the scripture for all kinds of different reasons. Some were poor because they were lazy and disobedient and they received God's judgment. Some were poor due to their uh, famine and disease and uh, some sort of catastrophe. They received compassion from God and his people. There were some that were poor due to exploitation and they received protection from God and uh, through justice. Some were poor for righteousness sake. They endured voluntary poverty. They chose less affluent endeavors and vocations. And so there's some discernment when it comes to helping the poor. The question for us to answer is, do people want to become financially responsible and dependent, or are they looking for someone just to enable them to do what they want to do? Our church has a benevolence fund. It's really not part of our budget, it's just this benevolence fund. That we collect money so we can help people in need. We take up an offering every quarter. You can always give to it whenever you want. You can just mark Benevolence Fund and it will go in the Benevolence Fund. By IR standards, we can use that money to help people. And that's what we use it for. So we've seen that churches are required to support those who labor in preaching and teaching, support missions by helping the poor, both locally and globally. globally this final thing is an option that the church should spend money on. And so... We want to look at it by maintaining sufficient facilities. When we read through the Old Testament, right, we see all kinds of examples of tabernacle and temple and places of worship, and, and we see all these things. However, there aren't any New Testament verses that say, hey, you're supposed to support church buildings. There were not any church buildings until the 4th century. This is when Constantine lifted persecution on the church. Historically, we've seen where the Roman Catholic Church has built these magnificent cathedrals and some of the architectures fascinating and some even have gemstones set into the walls of these places. After the Protestant Reformations, Protestant churches have had these simpler, less uh, ornate structures. So no church can be... Uh, uh, um, Churches shouldn't be just, you know, going crazy with their building and, and uh, uh, being like, well, look at all this money and this. We have, we have gold-plated, what is this thing? Podium. I don't know. I don't even know what this thing's called. Right? Right? Sometimes we see churches, they meet in storefronts. Sometimes they meet in remodeled industrial buildings. Sometimes they even meet in movie theaters. People are moving to house churches now. And that could be a good thing, but I don't think primarily it's a good thing. It can be a good thing because they don't have to support pastoral staff and, and all this sort of stuff. But there's some bad things because um, even though they don't have to pay for a building, I mean, how do they do ministry to teenagers? Um, what happens if there's false teaching going on? There's nobody over them to help them uh, in false teaching. And they tend to be in their own age or social groups. Now, we have a facility here, right? This facility requires maintenance. I don't know if you know that or not. It requires upkeep. Let me give you a quick illustration of this. Some of you said to me, Pastor, we can't hardly see the words on the screen back here. And I can understand that because our projector's old and it's run its course. And, and I think the best solution is two large televisions on either side. But that's um, not free. I've never walked into Walmart or anywhere else and been like, oh, look, there's a free 75-inch TV. Just what I was looking for. You have to buy televisions and mounts, cable, switcher boxes. My best estimate is probably around $4,000, maybe a little less, to do everything. Now, do we have the money? Yeah, we have the money. 
but we're deficit spending. So we brought in a few hundred dollars to do this, but we've also not made a big push. I've not stood up and been like, hey, let's give to this or anything like that. But there's an example. Paying for something to better do ministry. There are all kinds of things we spend money on to do ministry that's unseen. Or requires maintenance and upkeep. Sometimes we have to purchase things to do our job more effectively. We've had to buy cameras and microphones, video editing software since COVID hit. Things require uh, uh, maintenance like our parking lot, putting paint on stuff. That's maintenance. Our lawnmower. Sometimes you have to upgrade and buy new stuff to do specific jobs like computers and <coughs> cables and cloud storage and internet coverage. We've had to buy our secretary a new computer because, to be honest, it was taking her forever to do simple tasks. And it's not because she's slow. Because the computer is. I share this because so much is unseen. For most people, you see a video show up on the internet or on YouTube or whatever, and you don't think, how did that video get there? You don't know it took four to six hours on Sunday to render it, to upload it, to, to do all the work that had to happen in order to get the video going. The truth is, ministry takes money even when it's not apparent, which leads to our final point. I gotta hurry, I'm out of time, I keep doing this. The church should save money biblically. The church should save money biblically. When you talk about personal finances, it's wise to save money for future unseen needs, right? Whether it's an emergency fund or saving so many months salary, for whatever reason, churches often do not do the same practice. They fail to save for planned purchases. And so what, what do we do at home um, if we want to eventually make a large purchase or we say, you know what, I think we want to buy a new whatever and it's going to be a lot of money. What do we do? We put money aside to be able to buy that. That's what we should And then when we have the money, we buy it. Often churches don't do this. Significant expense comes and they've not put any money away and so they have to pull money out of places. And it's made it more difficult because... Uh, especially when churches are deficit spending like our church. And so how are you going to save for big purchases? Ideally, you would bring in more money than your actual budget, and then you could save for big purchases by putting money back aside to purchase large items, like a new roof or a new projection system. Ideally, you have planned saving in your budget. This brings us to the question, should a church avoid debt? Like with our personal finances, debt's a risk. I believe it should be avoided, if possible, for a church. I know of many churches that went into debt to build a building and now they struggle to pay it off. And sometimes they can't pay it off. And just like when you buy a house, you take out a mortgage, I believe there are situations where incurring debt is, is legitimate and necessary. However, the preferred method should be always pay for cash. But you can take on reasonable debt if you, if you have to. One example would be like if a piece of property came up for sale right next to the church. I think it would be reasonable to take on debt if you had to in order to secure that property. So we've seen the church should secure money biblically. They should spend money biblically. They should save money biblically. We've covered a lot of ground. I trust that you learned some things. But the church doesn't really just want your money because it's not your money in the first place. It's God's money. It's just in your pocket. 
I want to conclude with this. And I understand that this message wasn't um, uh, about surrendering your life to Christ. But what I found is sometimes we have such a tight hold on our pocketbook, we fail to see Christ. Sometimes we are so fixated on the fact that it's, that it's our money that we don't even stop to think about God. And sometimes we become so legalistic with the tithe, we fail to see what God is actually asking us to give, which is not just our money, but our whole lives. And we become very much like the Pharisees, busy following the rules, not busy following Christ. And it's possible that in listening to this message that, that you've discovered that you really don't know the Lord. And I want you to know that today you can trust Christ as your Savior. Or perhaps you've known all along that you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you've been trusting in your money. Let me tell you that God can do so much more with His money than you can. And so I, I would implore you to surrender to Christ today. And it's easy to do. You can say a prayer like this. It's not a magic prayer, but it's a confession to Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son. You died to forgive me of my sins. I know I have sinned. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. It saves you. Christ saves you if you call out to him. And it's just your expression of trust in him. If you said that prayer or something like it or you want to know more, I'd love to follow up with you. If you said that prayer, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. The word FAITH to 309-328-3488. And it'll just send you a card just like I talked about at the beginning. And I can follow up with you. You can do that in your pew if you want to. Or you can just send a text message to that number if you want to. I close with this. People are asked on national survey to rank professions based on trust. Pastors rank seventh. Seventh. Only 36% of people trust the church. 36%. Those numbers are at an all-time low. The local church should not be that way. Instead, we should be a model of godly financial integrity as we are good stewards of God's resources. And may you look at your own life this morning. And if you realize that you've not been a good steward of the resources that God has given to you to care for, may that change. And I'd only ask you this. If you reflect on your life and you realize you're not a good steward, what are you going to do about it? You can just keep doing what you're doing and say, ah, no big deal. Or you can allow God to change your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Lord, it's never easy to stand up and talk about money and talk about finances whether it's how the church secures and spends and saves finances or how we secure and spend and save finances. It's never easy to stand up and say this is how the church is to spend their money biblically and to include the fact that we are to care for the man that's faithful in preaching and teaching your word. 
But God, I know this, that you take your word and you penetrate hearts and lives, whether it's people in this building or whether it's somebody that listens to this message uh, next week or next year or way down the road, who knows? Maybe somebody online right now watching and you've spoken to them. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would respond to your word this morning. And I don't know what that looks like for everybody. For some, it may mean they reach out. For some, it may mean for the first time that they realize that they've been holding on to not Jesus Christ, but their money and other things, and that they need to surrender their life to Christ today. For some, it may mean that they, that they actually sit down and, and do something with their money so that they can give more to effectively accomplish ministry within the church. For some, maybe it's just an attitude shift to understand it's not ours in the first place. It's all yours that you've blessed us with as stewards to accomplish your will. Lord, I don't know how you've spoken. I just pray that we respond to what you say to us and however we are led to respond. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we see you do when you come. Thank you.